the Bible Girl Podcast. I'm Jessica Robinson, and I've gathered my Bible, my journal, some study tools, and highlighters in every color for study time. From the practical to the inspirational, I pray that these podcasts give you the tools and motivation to be a Bible Girl, too. So, uh, as we return to the book of Esther... We see this story that's very dramatic, it's full of danger, and we used the analogy last week as we opened our our study and and looked at the first three chapters of Esther, and we talked about how it looked like all the pieces were being put on the chessboard, on the game board, and and we saw the different characters that were being introduced. Esther, we see great crisis that has come about. So so previously in the story of Esther, we see that the the Jewish people who have been in exile for nearly a hundred years, they've been taken away from their homeland in Judea and Israel and Palestine, and they've been carried off to Persia uh, through the invasions of the Babylonians, then later the oversight and and, uh, rulership of the, the Persian Empire. And uh, they've been exiled. And some of the Jewish people have gone back to Jerusalem and Judea to try to rebuild a life there in their homeland. But others have chosen to stay. And Esther and her uncle Mordecai, or rather, excuse me, her cousin Mordecai, are actually some of those Jewish people who've chosen to stay. And they're working and they're involved in Persian culture. And they're actually involved in the Persian government. Mordecai is an official in the Persian government. And Esther has been chosen, this young Jewish orphan has been chosen to become the queen of the launch of her life. Just imagine imagine what a dramatic, accelerated uh, uh, launch of her life, how she, you know, is this orphan. It's cared for by her older brother, older cousin, excuse me, and he's watched over her. And now here she is. She is, she is the wife of the, the king of the, of the Persian Empire, King Ahasuerus, or some Bible translations have King Xerxes. And there, there she is, and she has this position of, of great influence with him. But a crisis has come. And King Ahasuerus has been led astray by one of his chief leaders in the empire, a man who hates the Jewish people, a man by the name of Haman. And Haman is is a blood enemy of the Jews. He despises the Jews. It goes back centuries of animosity. And he's a descendant of an ancient people, the Amalekites, that hated the Jewish people. And, And Haman is just, can I say it this way? He's hell bent on destroying the Jewish people. He wants them eradicated. And there's a, there's a conflict, but it be drama come about. Mordecai in the process that kind of pushes it over the edge and makes all this drama come about. And so Haman has deceived King Ahasuerus and, and tricked him into signing an edict, giving an order that 11 months from the date that the order was signed, that there would be a, a, a lynching, a, 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 a uprising against the Jewish people, and they would be killed throughout the territory of the Persian Empire, that the entire Jewish nation would be eradicated and all their property would be confiscated. And it's with this scene in mind that all these pieces on the chessboard are now put in place, what is going to happen? Now, we've said that the book of Esther is a comedy, And I realize that nothing that I've said sounds comedic in any way. There's nothing to laugh about. And yet, all throughout this story, we see that it looks like there's this great calamity coming, and all of a sudden there's a tremendous reversal. And that reversal is where the comedy lies. And that reversal in chapter 6, seeing today as we study together chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6 of the book of Esther. I'm going to introduce chapter 4, and then Jessica is going to come and teach chapter 5, and then I'll come back and conclude chapter 6 and tie it all together for today as well. So I encourage you, take your Bible, please, and let's open it up to the book of Esther. I'm on page 412 if you're using one of the Bibles here from church, and I encourage you to to take a look at that and follow along. And we're just going to see that there's a God of action. Yes, he's hidden. 
Yes, we don't always see him. We don't always hear him. We don't always notice what he's doing. But it's very clear that there's a God of action who rules the universe, who created everything that there is, who's made tremendous promises. And we see him keeping his promise to Esther and to the Jewish people. And we see him doing that here throughout this story. And so even though God is never once mentioned by name or on display, book of Esther we see very clearly that this hidden God is on display. That this hidden God, this silent God, is working, is acting in order to keep his promises. And when you and I have these times in our lives where we think that God is aloof, or God is ignoring us, or God doesn't care, or God's on vacation and left me high and dry and stranded and he's not answering his phone, the truth is, is God is watching, God is listening, and God is acting. Even when we can't see him, he is acting for his glory and for our good. Even if it is behind the scenes, he is on the move and he is working. So in Esther chapter 4, verse 1, we read these words. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, this edict to exterminate the Jews, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed. The king's command and his gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Well, when you get bad news, what do you do? feel like pulling your hair out. Maybe you cry. Maybe you go complain and gripe with somebody. Maybe you whine and argue about it. Maybe you protest in some way. We all do that. And that's what Mordecai is doing here. He's not just saying, oh, well, another day in the empire. Oh, well, that's the way it goes. Just let it pass. No, he, he protests. He is so upset over what's happening that instead of wearing his, his clothing of nobility, Nobility that indicates his position as a leader in the empire, uh, a person of influence. He, he doesn't dress like that. He puts on old, scratchy, grungy clothing, sackcloth. It, it, it was a sign of mourning, it, like somebody wearing a black armband. Or how they, the black airman is, is killed in an, in an accident on a call. They hang, they hang the black uh, drapery around the, the entrance of the fire station. It's the same picture. It's the same idea. It was an outward way to indicate that something very traumatic had happened on the inside. And there was great grief, a great burden, great sorrow had engulfed your life. And that's what Mordecai is doing with this, this grieving. And, and he's not only wearing clothing that indicates he's grieving, but he's letting everybody hear his grief. He's wailing. He's crying. He's sobbing. And he positions himself right there at the front entrance of the palace. Now, he couldn't go into the palace because he was wearing sackcloth. He weren't allowed to do that. The king wanted only happy people, cheerful people, joyful, nicely dressed people in his presence. So you couldn't just go in while you were mourning or grieving. But he stands right there. It's like somebody going to the White House or to the entrance of the Capitol and protesting and just standing there and having that position there. That's when somebody has come. And he's grieving over what is happening, that this great calamity has come, that the Jews are going to be exterminated because of the law that the king, King Ahasuerus, has signed, uh, ordering it to happen. And it's not just Mordecai, because it says Jews throughout the empire are grieving and crying and mourning and lamenting over everything that's taking place, because they understand that they're, they're going to be exterminated. But there's one Jew that's not crying about all this. There's somebody who's kind of blissfully ignorant or unaware that this calamity has befallen the Jewish people. She doesn't even know that it's taking place. And it's Queen Esther. She's inside the palace in the harem. She's doing her queenly duties. She's responsible for the things that she's responsible to do. And, and there she is, and she's not even aware of what's going on. And it says in verse 4, when her young women and her, and her, her servants and her assistants and attendants, her young women and her eunuchs came and told her, told her about Mordecai, 
that he was standing outside the palace at the gate protesting and mourning and grieving in sackcloth and ashes. It says that the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that she might, he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Her desire was, Mordecai, come in here and talk about it. So here, you can't wear that clothing in. So here's a change of clothes. I've given you a new suit and tie. Put it on. Come inside. Let's talk about this. I don't understand. Why are you so upset? But Mordecai refuses. He says, no, I'm going to stay out here and keep protesting and keep crying and keep grieving over what's taken place. So then Esther calls Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to tend her and ordered him to go out to Mordecai to learn what, 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 it, what this was and why it was. And so this servant goes out and he's talking to Mordecai and he's trying to hear and the exact, and Mordecai told him exactly what had happened to him and to all the Jews and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Remember, it was, it was uh, 300 tons of silver, 10,000 talents. It was an incredible amount of money that Mordecai had, in a sense, bribed the king with. And uh, he then said also that this decree was written. He gave him a copy of the law and told him to go and show it to Esther and explain it to her and to beg that, and then ask her, go and beg the king for his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And it says that the servant then went to Esther and told him everything that Mordecai had said. But then notice in verse 10, Esther's reaction to the servant. And this is what he's to take back to Mordecai. Verse 11, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being except the one, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther is saying, I understand what you're asking me to do. I understand the situation is extremely dangerous and somebody needs to talk to the king. But it's not as easy as you think, Mordecai. I can't just go prancing into the, into the courtroom where the king sits on his throne and just ask him a favor. I can't do that. I haven't seen the king for 30 days. You might be thinking, what? You haven't seen your wife? You haven't had dinner with her, talked with her, slept with her, done anything? no. No, the king has a harem. There are lots of other women in his life. The, the queen had her own uh, place of living, her own apartments. She had her own life, her own social calendar. And so it was not uncommon for the queen to have the royal title and the royal responsibilities, but not have the interaction with the king. I really don't think that. And so Esther's saying, I haven't seen the king for a month. And I really don't think that there's anything on the agenda that we're going to sit and talk. And she's well aware of the law of the Persians is such as that you're not allowed just to go in and interrupt the king whenever you feel like it, when he's on duty. You can't just do that. In fact, what's interesting is archaeologists have found several carvings on the walls in different palaces, and especially in the Persian town of Persepolis. And they saw all these carvings on the wall, and there's the king sitting on his throne, and he actually has this large staff in his hand. It's about as tall as he is, so don't think of like a little, little magic wand or something like that, but something long and tall. And if it's made of gold, he's sitting there holding it. It's a sign of his authority and power. And behind him in those same carvings are these big, strong Persian soldiers, and they're holding axes. And the idea is you come in and bother the king, we come and chop your head off. So don't you dare come in and bother the king unless, he, just because I'm queen, because we'll kill you. And so Esther's saying, look, just because I'm queen doesn't give me a special pass to go in and see the king. I will only be able to do this if the king extends his scepter and welcomes me. I, I will only, this plan will work only if the king's heart is changed and he is interested in hearing what I have to say. He hasn't been interested for 30 days. I'm not so sure that he wants to hear what I have to say. And it might bring about my death in the process. Mordecai 
doesn't take this as a satisfactory answer. And it says in verse 12, he told Esther this. Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. When people find out that you're Jewish, you'll die also. You will die also. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai replies to his cousin Esther and says to her, Esther, now's the time. God raised you up for this. Isn't it? It's not just a coincidence that you're the queen, that you have the king's favor, that you have the opportunity. Other people can't go in and appeal to him. The door is shut to them, but the door may be open to them, to you, if you're willing to go and approach him. And if you don't, I do believe that God is going to send deliverance to the Jews. In fact, that's what he's saying in a very cryptic way. Deliverance will arise. Deliverance will come from another source. Mordecai is saying somebody is going to come to the rescue. Well, who's that big somebody? He keeps his promises in the God of Israel is going to come to deliverance because Mordecai knows that God keeps his promises and that he will preserve his people from destruction. And there's one more thing that he says at the beginning of his reply, rebuttal to Esther's warning that if I go in, I might die in the process and this plan might not work. He says, look, if you... Don't think that you yourself will escape any, any of this just because you're the queen, just because you're in the palace of, of King Xerxes, King Ashwaris. Don't think that you'll escape all this. In fact, what Mordecai is indirectly saying here, if you don't do anything, you're going to die. But if you risk talking to the king, you may die, but you also may not. If you do nothing, it is certain that you will die with the rest of the Jews, even though I believe God will come to the rescue. But if you don't say anything, destruction will come to you. If you do take the risk, you just might live, and you might also be able to save all the Jewish people as well. I believe, he says, God has raised you up for a time like this. You see, Esther had been told by Mordecai and many of the Jews had done this as they were in captivity there in, in Persia. They were told to hide their Jewishness. Don't make their Jewish distinctive an issue. Don't worry about the foods. Don't worry about her, your name and your language. Embrace the Persian culture. And Esther has been doing that. Remember her given name, the name of her birth was Hadassah, a Hebrew name that means myrtle tree. That's her name, but she doesn't identify that way. She takes a Persian name, Esther, that means star, and she holds that name. And so here she is, a Jewish girl who's left her Jewish identity behind, and she's fully embraced the Persian culture. But Mordecai is saying, you've got to step out of that, and you've got to now begin identifying with your people. You need to recognize your people are about to be destroyed, and God put you in this place. Are you willing as this? For such a time as this to come to the rescue. Are you willing to identify with your people in this way? Are you willing to identify with your God? Because now's the time to do that. And what we see at the end of verse four, or chapter 4 is this. Esther says in verse 15, she, she replies to Mordecai, verse 16, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, in the capital, in the city there. And hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will fast, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther identifies with her people. I don't see that. Well, that's what that's to call out to her God, the God of Israel. You say, but I don't see that. Well, that's what that fasting is all about. Fasting is not just 
a hunger strike. It's not just skipping food and drink, although she emphasizes that. Fasting is a time for, yes, depriving, of your, you're depriving yourself of food, but you're doing that in order to focus on drawing near to God, focusing on his commands and his promises, focusing on his truth and looking at your life in relationship with him. This is actually something bigger going on here. Do you remember back up in the beginning of chapter 4 and verse 3? It says the Jews reacted to this terrible news of their extermination. It says at the end of verse 3, with fasting, weeping, and lamenting, many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Frank, would you show the next slide, please? It's interesting. Bible scholars have pointed out that that little phrase, fasting, weeping, and lamenting, is echoed in the book of Joel, the prophecy of Joel, where he tells the people of Israel to repent of their sin and turn back. Return to me. So listen to this. Let me read it for you. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. And it's the same Hebrew word as the word lamenting there. Turn to the Lord with your fasting and weeping and mourning or lamenting and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. The prophet Joel had said years earlier, if you find yourself in these calamitous situations, this time of great catastrophe and danger, turn to the Lord. But don't just tear your clothing as a sign of your mourning and repentance. Don't just throw ashes on your head or sit in sack, wearing sackcloth. Tear your heart. Let there be fasting and weeping and mourning as you grieve over your As I study this, and turn to the Lord. I think, as I study this, that this is exactly what Esther and Mordecai and the other Jews there in Susa and in throughout the empire, that's what was happening. Life can be so comfortable. Life can be so easy that you forget all about the Lord. And in this moment of crisis, it's a wake-up call. Wait a minute. Am I right with God or not? Am I going his way or not? Am I living for him or not? Is he first in my life or not? And Esther is bowing before the Lord, and Mordecai and the Jews are lamenting. They're grieving, and they're mourning, and they're crying over their sins, and they're fasting because it's a turning to the Lord. And then even Joel says, do you see this here? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? Who knows? It's just like Esther saying, if I perish, I perish. But maybe I won't, but maybe I will. I'm going to turn to the Lord, and I'm going to trust in him. Here, Esther resigns herself, not the God who is hidden, but she resigns herself to God, the God who is hidden, the God who is silent, but the God who she understands must work and act to save her people. She can only fast and pray. She can only appeal to the king. But it's God who has to change the king's mind and turn his heart. And that's what she's praying for. And that's what she's fasting for. And that's what you and I need to remember. That God calls us to act in obedience to him. Calls us to act to do his will. But doing God's will and acting in obedience is beyond our ability to do. We have to depend on him and rely on him, the God who acts, the God who comes to the rescue. Jesse's going to pick it up from here, and let's see what happens when Esther goes to King Ahasuerus. Chapter 5 is two stories contrasting wisdom and folly. We're going to see Esther's visit with the king, and we're also going to see behavior, two very different Haman does after this, and we're going to see two very different ways of behavior to very different people and how they respond. Esther has positioned herself correctly internally. She's humbled herself before God. And when we pick it up in chapter five, she is now ready to take, um, to prepare externally to see the king. So we're going to start in verse one of chapter five. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now this is a very different um, Esther that we see here as the last time she approached the king. 
This is not a passive victim, but in this case, this is a queen, someone who has accepted her role and is taking it on in a new way. Uh, both visits to the king required preparation. The first time she had those 12 months of beauty treatments, this time she prepared her heart. She spent three shows uh, in the right place before she goes in to see the king. The last time she chose, uh, she allowed someone else to choose her clothing for her. She, uh, she wore what they picked out and she went into the king. This time she chooses herself. The Hebrew there says that she put on royalty. This has two kind of meanings to it. One is that she put on her royal robes. She put on specifically the clothes that benefited her station, number one. And number two, clothes that were appropriate to go into the throne room to see the king. She's not wearing yoga pants or ripped jeans. You know, she's wearing something that is very appropriate in this solemn occasion to come into the king. And they are also things that represent her status. But there's also a, a bit of an internal putting on royalty. Up until this point, we've seen her be very passive. We've seen her accept the things that come her way and try to make the best of them. In this instance, she is taking some control. She is putting on royalty, who she is. She is the queen, and she puts these things on, and, she, and she's stenity. This time, she chooses the clothes, and she chooses who she'll become. And she stands up, and she walks into this inner court and waits for the king to notice her. Now, I want you to think for a second. What do you think the scene is when she walks in there? I would imagine, personally, I think it gets kind of quiet, don't you think? I mean, this is something that you just don't do. There might have been some people with shocked looks on their faces. We don't know exactly what happened, but I would imagine it's a tense scene. If it's not tense to those around her, it's certainly tense to Esther. She walks in and she waits for the king to notice her, to see what he will do when he sees her. And the Bible tells us in, um, in verse 2, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. This is um, the moment she was waiting for. The king sees her. He looks on her with favor, extends the scepter, and she comes forward. We don't have a lot of, and I think in May, after in the protocol, she may, we don't have any indication that touching it was what was done. I think in many cases, what she was doing there, it, it was a sign of acknowledging his, his mercy to her his kindness in accepting her. Once again, we see Esther acting throughout this chapter with great humility. She comes before the king, it's, it's kind of a tender moment, just touches the scepter and acknowledges that he has allowed her access to him. And so she can come to him and bring her request. The king looks at her and he wants to know, what is it, what's wrong, what is your request? And of course he knows that if she was willing to risk her own life, she must be troubled about something. There must be something that she wants, something that's wrong. And he wants her to tell him. She's very humble in the way she replies. Let's take a look at this in, in verse, um, in verse uh, 3. The king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom that I have prepared. She said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Now, this seems kind of, of odd in that she has this burning uh, 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 request that, that she needs to make of the king, save my people. But instead, what she does is says, come to dinner, come to a banquet. And I think this is where we see a little bit of her wisdom and her savvy. She's learned a little bit about this king. She's learned a little bit about palace life. And so I think she's doing a couple of things here. First of all, she's, she's getting him away from his advisors into a more private and personal moment. We saw from chapter one that this is a king who likes to make decisions in committee. You know, he didn't just deal with Vashti herself. When she opposed him, he, he brought it to all these people around him and they argued and they had a big discussion about what was gonna be done. I think she wants to avoid that. She wants to avoid having other people weigh in on the decision. She's bringing him away so that it's more personal and she can relate to him on a more personal nature. 
who likes the feast. She's also putting him in a position of where he's comfortable. We know this is the guy who likes the feast. We've seen him throw money himself already. He likes the, he likes the wine. He likes the, the party atmosphere. I think she's pulling him into something where he's comfortable and where he is maybe uh, his guard is let down just a bit. But lastly, she is starting a chain of requests that is going to get more specific each time, making it harder and harder for the king to say no. She is starting out with a very simple, easy thing. Hey, come to a banquet. Let me give you a meal in your honor. And she is going to narrow him, narrow his ability to say no to her with each request that goes on. So um, the king orders Haman to be brought quickly and to come to the banquet. And they go to this banquet that Esther has prepared. And while they're there, the king, who's still wondering what the real issue is, what's really going on, she's obviously troubled. He says to her, In um, chapter six, again, it says, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, even to half of to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king said. These two if statements are uh, done in such a way to show, first of all, her humility, again, deferring to him and his decision-making. He's the one that gets to make the choice. But she's also, once again, putting him in a position where he almost has to uh, give her what she wants. If he is willing to come to the banquet, and if she's willing to tell him what she needs from him, at this point, he is almost obligated to give her what she wants. And so she has completely narrowed his options here in requesting this second banquet and giving him the option to come or to, or to not come. He accepts the banquet, and it says um, that she, she says that I will do as the king said. If you come tomorrow, I promise. Tomorrow, I will tell you exactly what I want. Now, up until this point, Haman is just there at the banquet. We don't really hear a lot from him. But he leaves this banquet, and he is overjoyed. And this is where we shift from wisdom to folly. And we take a look at what Haman's up to here. It says, Haman went out that day in verse 9, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. He was in a place of honor. The queen invited the king and him only. He left that banquet feeling like the world was his oyster. He was so happy. And all it took was one look from a man who wouldn't bow to him, who didn't treat him the way he wanted to be treated, and who represented him. It says he restrained And his day went immediately downhill. He goes home. It says he restrained himself. He went home and he called for his wife and his friends to come around him. And he begins to tell them about this instance that went on today. And it says, Haman, in verse 11, recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I am also invited by her together with the king. He kind of recounts his resume to his friends and his wife and tells them how awesome he is, how he's such a great guy, all these good things, everybody loves me. Everything should be great. And it should be, except for Mordecai. He says, yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the deej or power gate. No amount of honor, no amount of prestige or power, no amount of wealth or riches could make him happy as long as Mordecai existed. And so his wife and his friends plot and come up with a plan His wife, the the Hebrew language here is very uh, feminine, and so uh, a lot of commentators feel that his wife is the one coming up with this plan. It says, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, 
and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. These gallows are a little bit of hyperbole. 50 cubits high would have been higher than the palace in Susa. She's, I think she's saying, let's just make sure everyone sees it. This is not a gallows like you or I would imagine a gallows. This is probably a very, very tall pole that um, Mordecai's dead body can be hung upon as a final human. Sounds really good to him of his enemy. He comes up with, his wife comes up with this idea and it sounds really good to him. So he has the gallows made that night with his plan to see the king in the morning. And so this chapter ends with both Esther the wise queen, and Haman, the, the foolish advisor, going to sleep at night with plans in place. They both made their, their case. They both have a plan. They both are hoping to prevail in the morning. The Proverbs 19.21 reminds us, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Esther goes to bed with this plan in motion to save her people, but unbeknownst to her, she's at risk of losing Mordecai. She could save her people and still lose her closest relative, the one who looks out for her. She also has no idea that God will come through. She doesn't know what he's doing. She doesn't know his plan. She goes to sleep at night with the... And Haman goes to sleep. He did the best she could. It's up to God now. And Haman goes to sleep with a plan to eliminate the one thing that's holding back his happiness. And he thinks he's got it all under control. But the one who doesn't sleep is still at work. And he'll work and he'll plan and he'll work out his purposes. It is his purpose that will stand. And the tide is just about to turn. Chapter 6 opens, we see the king is sleeping, but he's awakened. He can't sleep that night. And it says, on, the night, on that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring a book of memorable, memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And so, you know, it's like you and I, sometimes when we wake up in the middle of the night, we're trying to fall back to sleep. Maybe you pull out a book. Uh, my dad always said, sleep or do something, fall asleep. And he was kind of tongue in cheek saying that, or pray, that'll make you fall asleep, or do something that'll make you fall asleep, but just do that. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, is King Ahasuerus does the same kind of thing. He says, well, bring the government records, bring all those bureaucratic records, and let me just read through them. That'll knock me out for sure. And so as the secretary brings the records in and begins reading them, recounting them to the king, this important detail is noticed. And the king is awake enough to find out and understand this in verse 2. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs or servants who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. We read about that in the opening chapters of the book, how this was an assassination plot. And Mordecai heard about this plot and gave the message to Esther, and Esther told the king, and the plot to assassinate the king was averted. The king's life was saved. Nothing happened after that. Stowed on Mordecai in verse 3, the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. You get the picture here. God is working and causing insomnia to come to King Ahasuerus. He wakes up, and of all the records they pull out, they pull out the record of Mordecai's heroic action in saving the life of the king. And as he's reading that, he understands that Mordecai was not honored or recognized in any way, and at that very moment when he's going to consult with one of his advisors, who is the advisor that comes in to talk to the king? Why, it's Haman. Haman who has a plan. Haman who believes that he needs to exterminate the Jews and he's going to start with Mordecai having him executed and then his body impaled his archenemy. 25 foot high pole in order to humiliate Mordecai, 
his archenemy, once and for all. And as Haman's coming in to kill Mordecai, Ahasuerus wakes up and realizes that he wants to honor Mordecai. And he needs the help of an advisor in order to do that. This is actually one of the funniest chapters in the entire Bible. When you see this tremendous reversal taking place here. Haman had just entered the court. And it says in verse 5, The king's young men told him, Haman is here, standing in the court. By now it's early morning. And uh, Haman came in and the, and, and the king said, let, let him come in. And Haman came in, verse 6. And the king said to him, asking him a question, not really asking why Haman's there, but just saying to him, here's a good question. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? What would you do for somebody that the the king wants to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Yeah. That royal robe said to the king, Let the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown has set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and so do to Mordecai the Jew who sits in the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. <laughs> I get goosebumps reading that. Can you, do you see that? Do you see how ridiculously funny this is? Haman is coming in, and yes, he wants to lift up Mordecai's body in death. The king wants to impale it and humiliate him by hanging his corpse on a pole. And the king wants to lift up Mordecai also, but he wants to put him on the royal horse and wear the royal robes and put the royal crown on his head and have someone lead him through the city saying, this is the man the king delights to honor. And Haman is the one who has to do that for Mordecai. How utterly, ridiculously ironic and humiliating that is to him who hates Mordecai and hates the Jews. You see, Haman is requesting something here very devious. He's asking for the king's own robes and the king's own horse and the king's own crown. He wants to be king. He wants to exalt himself and make himself king because he's convinced that he's the man that the king wants to delight to honor. But God has been sovereignly working and brought to mind someone who was forgotten, but someone who was faithful to the king, someone that God had put there for a time like this, and the king wants to honor. Verse 11 And Haman has to do it. And so, as it picks up in verse 11, Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And I can't help but think that there's Mordecai sitting there with the royal robes and the royal crown on the royal stallion, going through the city with a slight smirk on his face, maybe waving at people, maybe looking down at Haman going... Stinks to be you, you know, type of thing. I don't know. Maybe he didn't gloat like that. But you can just imagine that even as Haman is leading the horse and Mordecai dressed in royal finery through the city, that every time he opens his mouth and says, this is the man, this is how the king delights to honor the man who he's pleased with, the word's probably just caught in his throat. He struggled to get the words out. He spit him out because he was so humiliated with this tremendous reversal here himself. In verse 12, it says, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Mordecai has been hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Mordecai has been mourning over the extermination, the potential extermination of the Jews. But here Haman is mourning because he has lost his honor. He has been humiliated in front of his adversary. He, mourned, he was mourning and he covered his head and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Remember, just the day before, he had been boasting and gloating about his power and honor and wealth and majesty as, as one of the king's most powerful advisors. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai 
before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. They wisely begin to say to Haman, you know what? It looks like the tide has turned. Look at this. You thought you were going to conquer the Jews. You thought you were going to humiliate Mordecai and execute him and and it's the Jews. But look what has happened to you. And Mordecai is a Jew. And you are standing against the Jews. And you will not overcome them. And while they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived. His servants arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther prepared. We said last week that the true hero of the story of Esther is not Mordecai or Esther. Yes, they're the protagonists. Yes, they're the the good guys in the story. There's no question. They're wearing the white hats. That's true. But the true hero of the story we see in this chapter is Almighty God, the silent God, the God who appears to be hidden, the God who appears to be aloof. He is actually working to deliver his people. And so here he is, turning the tide, beginning the reversal with the exaltation and lifting up of, of Mordecai at Haman's expense. The tide has begun to turn. The reversal is beginning to take place. And it's God orchestrating it. Mordecai is not even aware. Esther is in bed sleeping while all this is happening. Mordecai is not even aware of what's going on when Haman goes in and makes the request uh, is about to make the request for his execution. He's not aware, possibly, of, of the king's insomnia and that the king has chosen to exalt him. It's God who's orchestrating all of this. It's God who's moving the pieces on the board. It's God who puts Haman in checkmate and is about to win the game and Haman's destruction and the deliverance of the Jews. And we see that all unfolding as we will read next week, chapter 7 and following. There's a couple big takeaways that you and I need to embrace as we read this story. This is why this story is so important for you and for me. This story is so important for you and for me because when you and I think that God doesn't care and he's not listening and he's hidden and he's not watching, the truth is he is seeing and hearing and knowing all about you and me. And he loves us at 5 verse 20 about us and he wants to come to the rescue. It says in Psalm 55 verse 22, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be moved. God cares about you. Cast your burden. Cast the challenges. Cast the difficulties. Cast the the fears and anxieties that you have. Cast them. Throw them upon the Lord. And he will sustain you. He will not allow you to be moved in all of this. He will keep you stable and strong. What is it that God is calling you to do? What vision has he given you of your life? What is he asking you to do, commanding you to do, leading you to do that is his will? What is a dream that he's given you to do? And are you struggling with moving forward to do it? Are you afraid to do it? Are you like Esther saying, if I go, I might die in the process. If I do this, I might lose everything. Well, the story of Esther is a reminder that our God is listening and watching us. And he's ready to act. He is the God who graciously extends his scepter to those who are in Christ. Come into his presence. There's no threat of judgment. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The judge has declared us innocent. He's declared us approved. He welcomes us into his presence. And so in Hebrews 4, it says, let's go boldly into the throne of grace, into God's presence, and ask him for the help that we need in our times of trouble. To go to him in prayer and cry out to him because he is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. He is a God who wants to come to our aid. And this is all possible This privilege of access is possible, not because I'm so beautiful or charming like Esther was, or so politically savvy like she was. I I have none of those things myself, and neither do you. The only reason we have access to the throne of grace is because Christ went to the cross for us. He was impaled, so to speak. He was lifted up. He was hung on our behalf, and he died there for us. But three days, little detail in this story, the dead and is alive. I always think it's just interesting, this little detail in this story, that Esther fasts, and on the third day, 
she goes to the king and the king extends his favor. I'm not saying that it's an allusion to the resurrection, but it makes me scratch my beard and wonder. It makes me wonder if that's a foreshadowing and a reminder to you and to me that because on the third day Christ rose, you and I have that access to our heavenly father who wants to help, who wants to aid us in our time of need. Go do the acts that God is calling you to do. Obey him, trust him, follow him, do his will. And do it knowing that you're not doing it alone. That that God who seems to be hidden, who seems to be silent, who seems to be aloof, really isn't. And ching and listening and working and acting. And because of that, we can cry out to him and he will help us in our time of need. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you so much that our Lord Jesus has opened the door and made it possible for us to have access into your presence, that we can cry out to you in our time of need and know that we're not alone, that we're not by ourselves, that you haven't ignored us that you do love us and care for us. Thank you that you're watching and listening. And I ask that, Father, you would help us to have the boldness to come into your presence and receive the help that we need in our time of need to do your will for your honor and for your glory. We ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening. Go to BibleGrowPodcast.com to email me, download show notes, sign up for my newsletter, print a monthly scripture writing list, and listen to past episodes. Join the Bible Girl Facebook group to get the latest podcast news and to interact with me and other listeners. I'm all over social media as Jessie L. Robinson. That's J-E-S-S-I-L Robinson. I'd love for you to friend or follow me. Join me again for another episode of Bible Girl.